Shalom. Hey, uh, Teddy. Hey, let's do this real quick. Let's take a group photo for the week, huh? All right, everyone, uh, big arms in the sky. Oh, wait, hold on. Oh, wait, they got the 0.5 now. All right, here we go. One, two, three. Oh, my goodness. Wowzer. What? Hey, one of the things I, what? What color? What? Pink. What? One, I'm not a, you can't do two. Ah. Where'd it go? Where, where, oh. Uh, I got two pink starbursts, so naturally, where's Gerard? Gerard. Gerard. Hey, this is truly a living legend right there. Gerard. Oh, Gerard. Gerard. Okay. All right. Well, did you guys have a good day today? All right. I think there's about 25 cows in each of these. Um, to be honest, I needed the sugar. May you have many sons and many daughters. <laughs> you just crossed the line. Um, <laughs> Gerard, later on, take him out. Um, okay, okay. Listen, listen, we got to get started here. It's 8.54. Gerard's got to go to bed in like a half an hour. Okay, so... After college, I went to uh, Australia. Turns out they speak English, K kind of. Now, I show up, I arrive there. Sorry, I'm still chewing my Starburst. It's going to be an awkward couple minutes, but bear with me. Okay. I show up, they pick me up, and they're like, hey, you came for some macas this avo, mate. And I'm like, what? Came for some macas this avo. Keen means are you interested in? Macca's is McDonald's. Why? No idea. Now, in Australia, these things get stuck to your teeth. I feel like I have braces again. Okay. I only had them for like nine years. Okay. It took me to a rugby match. I've never been to a rugby match, but they took me to one, and it was against the All Blacks in New Zealand. Come on, Erica. Now, they took me to this match. And I remember after the game, there was just this, all this commotion. And everybody's moving one way. They're all big people. Like rugby players are like, there's football strong. And there's like rugby strong, which is like the difference between me and Gerard. Now, they're all moving in this certain direction. And I remember I left my wallet back in the stadium and I'm trying to move against this throng of everyone coming at me. And I'm struggling. Everyone's all riled up. They have like rugby jerseys on. There's boom, boom. Everyone just kind of like, it's like a mosh pit, but times 10 with really strong people. Now, and it's impossible to move against the tide that's coming at them. The scene that we're going to look at tonight 
is very similar to the massive wave and the massive tide that's moving in one direction. 50,000 people moving this way, and you're just alone, five foot, 11 and a half guy, six foot with shoes on. Now, moving in this direction, and you're trying to weave your way through the pressure of everyone moving against you. And this is really what it means to be a Christian. It's not to move with the crowd. It's to walk against the crowd. It's to swim upstream. And it's difficult. There's the press and the push of a certain direction. And yet we've been called not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The question we've been asking this week is what does it mean to live for Christ in a world that is hostile towards him? I think I gave you some examples last night, and I'm saying those things to scare you. I'm just saying for you to be realistic. Jesus says this world is not your home, and yet at times, can we be honest? At times we believe it is. And so I encourage you to turn on the news every once in a while and to remember, no, this is just a motel on our way to our eternal home with God. But we're going to look at what it looks like to stand for God when everyone else is bowing down. Last night we looked at Daniel's resolve not to defile himself. He would not eat the king's food. He was a man of integrity, which means that he was sound. He was whole. He wasn't one thing with this group of people and another thing with another group of people. He was one guy before God. And who he was before God is who he functioned as before the watching world. Last night we observed that Daniel knew four things. He knew that compromise is a pollutant that poisons your soul. He knew that compromise only breeds further compromise. You compromise on one thing, it only leads to a further, further, further compromise. We always use the term, that man fell into sin. Biblically speaking, people don't fall into sin. They slide. They drift. That's why in Proverbs it says, the waywardness of the fool kills him. It's the naivety of the fool. It's this slow drifting. It's this dabbling with sin. And then over and over and over again, and then you soon realize you're in head deep. Daniel knew that you are not in God's will if you have to compromise to get there. And he knows that you don't have to play politics to advance the kingdom of God. He's a man of conviction. And you know the cool thing? He's a teenager, He's not waiting to become something. He's not saying, well, once I'm my dad's age, he looks around and says, if I don't stand for God, who will? In our own day, the price of admittance in modern society is conformity. Bow down or be crushed. If you walk to the beat of a different cultural drum uh, in regards to sexuality, in regards to relativism and morality, you will be rejected. And the trajectory of our culture is to deny the hard edges that may be present within the scripture, meaning that there are some hard truths in the Bible, but what the, what the world wants is to smooth out those rough edges. Don't like the exclusivity of Jesus Christ? Just say he's one way to God. And who am I to say he's the only way? Don't like what the Bible says about such and such? Is this a sin or is this wrong or the Bible's view of marriage? Just say, ah, it's an antiquated document. It's difficult to reconcile how relevant it is for us today. Don't like the fervency in which Christians evangelize. Tone it down. Simmer down. You can honor God in your own house, but keep your mouth shut. Is it something that might offend someone? Then don't teach it. Is it something that might make a student uncomfortable? 
then stay away from it. The culture preaches a strong sermon, and at times, even church culture preaches the same sermon. Conform. Just be like the world. At the conclusion of Daniel 1, Daniel and his three friends, because of their steadfast commitment to honoring God, God gives them favor, it says. And Nebuchadnezzar elevates them to positions of honor and prestige within the Babylonian government. These young teenagers were to serve in the king's court, and they were to assist him in administrating his affairs. And I want to summarize chapter 2 for you because the focal point of what we're going to view tonight is actually in chapter 3. Balcony, you doing well? Okay. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar, our king, he has a dream, a dream that no one can seem to interpret. And he asked his magicians and he asked his like wizard-ass type of people to interpret the dream. And they say, well, hey, first, tell us the dream and then we'll interpret it. He says, no, if I tell you the dream, then you're going to make up some interpretation. I want you to interpret the dream without me telling you the dream so that I know you're actually legit. And here's what they say in chapter 211. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king. Inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, the king, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh." And because of this, 2.12, the king was angry and very furious and commanded all the wise men of Babylon to be destroyed. He says, you can't solve my dream? No problem. I have no need for you. Destroy them. Off with their heads. Daniel catches wind of this and he approaches the king and he's asking for the opportunity to go and pray to his God so that he might hear about the dream from his God, and then give the proper interpretation. I want to read verses 27 and 28 with you of chapter 2. Daniel, after returning to the king, answered the king and said, no wise man, I mean, he's, real quick, Daniel is proud of his God. He's not saying, hey, you know, it's just, it just happens that I have, no, he says, hey, I want to clarify something, Nebuchadnezzar. You said no one else on earth could do this. Well, it's a good thing I serve the God of gods. Verse 27, he says, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. He continues to really illustrate the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that there is a great king. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. This is you, he says, Nebuchadnezzar. But after you, there will be successive kingdoms. And it goes on to illustrate the rise of the Medo-Persian, the Greek, and the Roman Empire. And then afterwards, there will be a kingdom that is set up by God himself, whose reign will never end, and who will remain on the throne for all generations. This chapter is worthy of greater attention, but we're summarizing because I want you to see something that will help us in chapter three. Nebuchadnezzar responds, though, to this interpretation, and look at 246. It says, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel, 
and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief perfect over the wise men of Babylon. He just became the prime minister. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. Pause there. How does Nebuchadnezzar initially respond? Nebuchadnezzar seems to understand something about God. God is the God of gods, he says, and the Lord of kings. He's been struck in a way. The, the, the wise men, the Chaldeans have said, there is not a man on earth, nor even God himself, who can give you what you're looking for. And Daniel says, let me go talk to my God and let it be known to you, Nebuchadnezzar, I don't serve one of your little deities carved in stone or gold or wood. I worship the king of kings, the creator of all things. And Nebuchadnezzar falls down on his face. He, he, he is humbled. But I want you to see something in chapter three because we're in a story. So I want you to find the drama with me and let's look at the next scene. Fade to black. Lights are back up on Nebuchadnezzar chapter three, verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come up to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered up for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. I feel like an auctioneer. I mean, that was pretty good. Okay. Uh, okay, back at it. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Let's just pause for a second. Chapter 2, 46, verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar is falling down on his face before a holy God. And he says, this is the real God. And five verses later, he's erecting a statue in the plains of Dura that all of the nation and all of his empire are to fall down and worship. What's interesting to you about this? Well, let me tell you what's interesting to me. Just a couple things. He seems to be stirred by the truth of who God is, but he's not changed. He's been charmed by this reality that there must be a God who is more powerful than the God he serves. And yet his ego comes back into play. He fell down on his face and falling down on your face is a testimony and a symbol of true emotional response to being struck by who God is. Likely a weeping and a total contrition and Wow, I've never knew, I, I never knew who God is. And yet a few verses later, he's worshiping another idol. 
I think this is so applicable specifically to a context like Hume Lake. Over the years, I encounter so many different students who have been stirred by the gospel, who have been convicted by the gospel, fall down on their faces. But moments later, they're bowing down to idols. Because it's one thing to be convicted. It's one thing to feel guilt. It's one thing to be struck. And it's another thing to be transformed. Nebuchadnezzar remains in his sin. And he bows down and forces everyone to bow down to an idol. I want to look at this idol. It says he made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits. A cubit is the distance of your elbow to the edge of your fingertips. So it's about 18 inches. So this would have been nine. Everyone can do that. I mean, everyone's kind of testing it out. Okay. 90 feet high in the air with a base fairly thin. So it would rise up in the middle of the desert and there it would be towering, and then it would, the vastness of it would be stunning, and it's plated, it says, with gold. It's an image of gold. And then he set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. We think about these idols, and we go, man, what are these people thinking back then? But the reality is, and we have to understand this even about the idols in our own culture today, we don't bow down to idols in the West like they do in the East. I've been to Nepal and India, and they're bowing down to little statues of Buddha, and that's still relevant amongst millions of people today. But in our contemporary culture, you're not likely going to fall down before a statue in your room. But you will bow down before the idol of your own reputation, your own prestige, before the idol and God of sex for your body, self-image, and human autonomy. Perhaps there's no greater idol than my life belongs to me. It could be the idol of happiness. But the human heart was made to worship. When you stop worshiping God, you don't become a non-worshipper. You will always become and continue to do what you are hardwired to do, which is worship. So whenever you become a non-worshipper God, you continue to do that and you find other things or other people or other objects or other images to worship. And here Nebuchadnezzar, who initially seems to worship God, we see that it's just for a moment. It's not real change. And I want you to watch this. As Nebuchadnezzar seeks to unify the nation politically, he uses religion to do so. He mandates politically that everybody worship the statue religiously. This is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do in Revelation. The Antichrist, we're going there, yeah. This is what we're going to do. The Antichrist is going to set up and require all to worship him, and he will skillfully weave his political agenda behind a unifying state religion. Nebuchadnezzar isn't saying, hey, you have to stop worshiping your God, stop worshiping your God. He's just saying, you need to add this God into your lunchbox, include him, so it's syncretistic. Meaning, I don't care what you do. I don't care if you're um, Mormon, Islamic. I don't care. It doesn't matter. As long as you all bow down to this God. He's not saying deny Jehovah. He's just saying, this is also your God. And I want you to watch the threat that he makes in verse six. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. It says in Jeremiah 29, 22, 
that Zedekiah and Ahab were also roasted alive by the fires of the king of Babylon. This was likely a huge kiln. Imagine a massive, massive, massive pizza oven. Domino's or Pizza Hut? Okay. Okay, good. Because if there were Pizza Hut people, I'd be concerned. Now, a massive, massive pizza oven, and it would be heated because they were likely making bricks in this massive kiln. And it would be 1,000 degrees centigrade, which would be like 18,000 degrees Fahrenheit. And as you even approached it, it would burn you alive. You can imagine the smoke pouring out of this oven. This is the ultimate turn or burn. This is the ultimate toast the king or he will toast you alive. If you don't bow down to the statue, think about this and consider what you would do. I want to grab you all by the proverbial collar. And I want you to put yourself in this situation. Listen to me. What's your name? Jacob. Jacob, here's the deal. I'm going to turn on some music. Easton, you got some music for me? Is he up there? Okay. Oh, wow. He's quick. Okay. Now, I'm going to turn on some music, Easton. And the moment I stop this music, if you don't bow down and worship the statue, I'm going to throw you into the fiery furnace. Deal? Oh, Easton, cut it. Okay. Ready? Boom. Any hesitation, you're dead. This is a real thing, and there's a real group of teenagers that are faced with this predicament. Turn or burn. Bow or be burnt. Can I want, I, w- I want you to just notice something, because even we looked at this last night. I want to draw your attention to the pace of persecution that's taking place. In chapter 1, they're... They're having to make decisions on whether or not they're going to partake of the king's meat and wine. And in chapter 3, they're having to make decisions of whether or not they're going to bow down to a gold statue that the king of Babylon himself has erected in a desert, or they will be burnt alive. In chapter 1, it's food and drink. In chapter 3, it's here's a furnace. Bow down or get burnt. I think many people in our culture and many people today think they're going to be able to time and pace out the persecution that might take place in our country and in the world, around the world. But I want you to notice that in the scripture, believers and followers of God never have the opportunity to relax or to think that persecution is far away. They were elevated to a position of authority in chapter 1. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, your God is the God of God. And in the moment they feel comfortable, and in the moment they think, hey, we're safe as followers of Jehovah. The next minute, they're having to make decisions on if they're going to bow down to God or bow down to an idol or stand up for God. This is why Jesus' invitation to come and follow him is a call to come and die Because every day is a dying to ourself. When we operate in religious freedom, like in many ways our country has operated, we thank God, but we live rooted in the promise that Jesus says the world is going to hate you. And we're always ready for what that will be. You understand that it could be, and, and... you could end up, we could end up having a great revival in our country. But biblically speaking, you don't know what your life will look like tomorrow. And Jesus says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, 
you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. He's just saying, hey, if you belong to the tide, if you belong to the throng, the crowd marching this way, the world would love you as its own. They would wrap their arms around you and they would hearty har with you. But because you walk to the beat of a different drum and you walk against the tide, Jesus, not a doomsdayer, Jesus says, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. In Babylon, the tide of politics turned amazingly fast. And we see this over and over again throughout scripture. The Israelites were thriving in Egypt. And then there's this verse, Exodus 1.8. It says, a new Pharaoh arose, comma, anybody know? Who did not know Joseph. And they were sent into slavery. David, at one point, is the man in the king's palace, and the next day he's dodging the king's javelin. King, or Elijah, is on top of Mount Carmel, and he's proclaimed that God is the God of God, and he defeats the prophets of Baal, and the next day he's running for his life, from Queen Jezebel. The crowds that flocked to hear Jesus on Sunday and said, Hosanna, 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 Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On Sunday, on Friday, they're crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What do you want us to do with him? Crucify him, what about Barabbas? We want Barabbas, we want Barabbas. It's a quick shift. You need to know right now who you're going to live for. You need to know right now. I want to look at this accusation with you that takes place in the following verses. Maybe these teenage boys, this was totally unexpected. You have to understand that. They were living in a foreign nation. They were living as hostiles. But over time, they just felt like we're good. Verse 7, therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree, right? They're, they're kind of coming and they're accusing. They said, you, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then the king arose in a furious rage and commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good, but if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace and watch this and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands 
I want you to consider for a moment the ways that these young men could have rationalized bowing down to this golden statue. Number one, they could have begun to think. I mean, you don't have to be a genius to think. They could have said, hey, Shadrach. Yeah, what's up, Meshach? Listen, we can bow down with our bodies as long as we're not bowing down with our hearts. It's the heart that matters. God looks at the heart. Remember, he said that about King David. The Lord looks at the outward. Yeah, man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. We can bow down with our bodies, but on the heart, on the inside, we'll just stand for Yahweh. Okay, what, what about this? We can actually pretend that the image we're bowing down to is a manifestation of our God. Come on, guys. Think with me. We can have more influence for God alive than we can dead, right? Think with me. Nebuchadnezzar has been kind to us. He's elevated us. He's protected us. And he's fed us. I mean, think about the food. The food. It's been awesome. No yellow starbursts. They could have said, we can bow now, and then we can confess our sin later. After all, that's what our ancestors did. They worshiped God, and they kept the high places. You know, now that you're saying that, Shadrach, Nebuchadnezzar didn't necessarily tell us to deny God. He just told us we also needed to bow down before other gods. It's easy to justify compromise, isn't it? You begin to rationalize and you begin to think through things. And over time, you begin to buy into your own narrative. But I want you to look at their response and I want you to keep in mind that these are young teenagers. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Pause there. Nine times out of ten, when you're confronted with a potential situation to compromise, you don't need a single minute to think about it. You don't. There's not a lot of gray in the Bible. There's some gray, but there's not a lot of gray. Most of the time you're confronted with a situation or an opportunity to compromise or an opportunity to bow down before another idol in your life, whether that be lust, pornography, gossip, greed. Nine times out of 10, you don't necessarily need to even debate it. They don't go, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, thanks. Can we take a moment? A teen steps forward and says, oh, king, we do not even need to think about it. I mean, don't you love that type of courage? God, raise up more of those types of dudes. We've already thought about it. You know when we thought about it? Years ago when we decided to live for God and God alone. You don't, want to, you don't even want to think it over. Our life belongs to God. What is there to think over? We can't mix your God with our God. It says in Exodus 20, we shall have no other gods before Yahweh. This is the first, the second, and the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I can't love that God with all my heart if I'm bowing down to another God with my body. My body is a testimony of what's happening inside my life. 
verse 17. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, this is the best, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They were willing to be faithful unto death. This is exactly what Jesus asks, not just of the heroes of the faith, but of every single follower of God. I would just want you to think about this for a moment. If you're not ready to say, I'm willing to die for him, you might not understand Jesus' invitation to come follow him. Because you followed Jesus upon the path of suffering and hatred and rejection from this world. It's a life, and I've said this, 1010 of John, life to the fullest, life with a capital L, but life with a capital L this side of eternity. You will experience the same derision and rejection that your Savior did. These young men are far more interested in obedience than they are deliverance. They don't dabble in religion. They were genuine followers of God. They know their theology. They know that God can deliver them. They say, God, our God can deliver you. They're going, well, of course God can deliver us. He's the most powerful, sovereign being in all of creation. He delivers his people from the hand of Pharaoh. He splits the Red Sea. He conquers the enemy nations. And a small nation takes hold of the primest piece of real estate in the world. And he's done that over and over and over again. History itself is a constant, constant theme of God delivering his people. But, but, God is not subject to us. And so if in his wisdom and in his plan he doesn't see fit to deliver us from this burning, fiery furnace. Listen, it makes not a single stinking difference to us because I'm just as happy to die for God as I am to live for him. Listen. And I don't mean to be cavalier. If you clap. I hope you could say that, though. If the time ever came, gun to your head. Deny God. Take a shot. Right? I mean, we like the idea of courage. but it's much harder, much easier said than done. These young men understood something, and this is one of the main themes for this evening. They understood that suffering itself is one of the distinctive hallmarks and birthmarks of the God followers. If you wanna be a preacher, I mean, if you wanna have 
If you want to make money in ministry, here's the easiest way to do it. Come to Jesus and live your best life now. Your life will be full of prosperity. I remember going to a church service a number of years ago, and he just said, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. And he says, some of you are experiencing financial hardship. I want to tell you, your bank will be full. Some of you are experiencing cancer. You will be cancer-free. Some of you are lonely. There will be seats around your table once more. I added the Texas accent. I want you to know something about the way that the Bible speaks. Jesus never promises a bankful, cancer-free, trial-absent life. On the contrary, he promises, Acts 14, 22, through many tribulations, we will enter the kingdom of God. If you want to live for Christ, you need to understand something right now. If you want the easy life, then walk the wide road. But if you want Jesus' righteousness and his life, that is a road that is indeed narrow. It is natural, though, to desire freedom from financial, psychological, emotional, spiritual, and circumstantial problems. We were born as God's image bearers into a perfect world. And I mentioned this, this more, or yesterday, but Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that there is some way hardwired into your DNA, a yearning for Eden, to get back to the way things were meant to be. You recognize that you're a fallen creature in a fallen world, and we live in a bent and confused and broken, fractured world, and you want things to be well. And that longing is normal, but we live in a world, Romans 8, that has been subjected to futility. And we live in not only a fallen world, but if you live in a fallen world as a Christ follower, you have the hope that one day all things will be made new. But until you reach your eternal promised land, you will be rejected like your Savior I want you to just listen to me as I read 1 Peter 4.12. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though something strange were happening to you. He's saying, hey, are you guys going through great difficulty? Are you being persecuted for being a Christ follower? Hey, listen, don't think this is anything strange. This is exactly what Jesus promised. He says, but to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may also rejoice and be overjoyed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, comma, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is a Christian camp. Hold on for a second. This is a Christian camp. And just part of the game in being a Christian camp or even Christian youth groups, you know, I would just say as you can make a, a generalization at times that there's a fear of presenting hard truths because you could walk away because it would be disinteresting for you at, at some point. 
to walk the road of difficulty. But Jesus never tries, and the Bible never attempts to shield you from the reality that to be a Christian is to walk on the path of suffering and testing and trial and tribulation and pain. But there's a great promise in it because Peter just says, to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why on earth could you rejoice as you endure great pain and rejection? Can I just give you a couple reasons? Isaiah 43, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow. And when you walk through the fire, you will be scorched. It will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. Matthew 28 says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then or he says, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. The great promise of those who are suffering is that suffering is often the indicator that causes us to actually experience the nearness of God in our life. When you're operating in great prosperity, you become comfortable. But the promise of God to those who are experiencing rejection for his name is that they have a particular nearness to the presence of God. And when they walk through the fire, they know he is with them. Of course, God doesn't save everyone from the fire. Here's, here, here's Hebrews 13. It says, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Here's some of the people that we consider the heroes of the faith. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy. Come on, that's baller. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground, all of these having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that they may, apart from us, that they would be made perfect. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made their firm stance with full expectation that they would be burnt alive. And that's not an abnormal level of commitment for a Christ follower. That's what Jesus says all of us should be ready to do. Now, I want to watch what happens in the story. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury at the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. 
He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up, I mean, dial in here, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn, nice guy, torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. I'm going to land the plane here in just a moment, but I just want to consider a couple things with you. How could Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand Firm. Can I tell you this? They had already won successive small skirmishes when it came to compromise and when it came to standing up for God. Meaning that faithfulness is accumulative. It'll be difficult for you to stand up for God when the furnace is presented before you when you are not able to stand up for God in your classroom. They had already said, I would not defile myself with the king's food, and they will not then consequently defile themselves by bowing down to another God. Faithfulness and this conviction, this courage, it builds over time as you make one decision after another and make the commitment, I will live for God in the mundane, in the small temptations. And the thought that I don't need to speak up. Furthermore, they were not alone. And and, and I just want to observe this with you for a second. They could have maybe done this individually, but it's certainly easier to do to stand for God when there are others alongside you that are arm in arm that are saying, we will stand for God together. There's a reason Jesus sent out his disciples two by two and not one by one. It's because he draws our attention to the reality that two are better than one, for if one falls, the other will lift them up. You need someone in your life. Let me just ask you, young woman, young man, do you want to live for God when no one else is? Then find a future cellmate. That if you are ever to be thrown into prison for preaching Jesus Christ, you know exactly who you're going to live in jail with. Maybe that never happens in our country. Sounds far-fetched. Or does it? But find someone who on your school campus says, if it's just us, we'll stand for God. If you've ever watched any war movies, like Saving Private Ryan or anything like that, One of the things that they'll often talk about is that, yes, they were fighting for their country. They were fighting 
for their families, but they'll often talk about how they were fighting first and foremost for the guy in the trenches next to them. You need someone in the trenches with you in the fight to honor God in an ungodly world, in a culture that's growing increasingly hostile towards him. Last, a couple months ago, I was holding in my Bible uh, what is the John Rogers Bible, which is one of the first translations of the New Testament, written 500 years ago in the UK. And at the time, there was no Bibles in English. And 500 years ago, there was only 300 million English, or 3 million English speakers. And John Rogers was one of the first people, along with William Tyndale, to translate the Bible into the English language. This was not allowed, and John Rogers was sent to prison and told he would be burnt at the stake if he did not recant and apologize for even attempting to do this. He had 11 children, the last of which was born while he was in prison. And while he was walking his way to be burnt at the stake, they held up a notice to him that said, if you just sign this, we'll let you go. Say it was all a mistake. Say that you do not live your life by this book. John Rogers looked at his wife. He looked at his 11 kids. And he said, what I have preached with my lips, I now seal with my blood. I want to be that guy. And so I'm thankful for Romans 15. Whatever has been written for us in the past has been written for our encouragement so that through the testimony of the scriptures, you can have hope. You know why you can have hope? Because the same God that delivered them and empowered them and emboldened them to live with courage is the same God that can embolden and fill you with his Holy Spirit so that even against your natural constitution of maybe cowardice, God can make you strong because against the backdrop of human weakness and human inability, God's glory shines the brightest. Let's pray. God, we love you and we're so thankful, Lord, for your son. We're thankful, Lord, for the truth of your word. We're thankful, Lord, that we have the testimony of the heroes of the faith who said, be it known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, that we will not bow, nor will we serve your graven image. Our God is able to deliver us from this fiery furnace, but even if he does not, we will not bow. God, would you right now be raising up young, woman, young men and young women who decide, I don't want to compromise, God. I want to live for you. And so, Lord, free them of the pollutants of sin that poisons the depths of their soul, would they confess that sin, Lord, so that they might see God and that this intimacy and nearness to you would result in a fiery passion to live exclusively for you? God, we don't necessarily see this type of hostility that they saw. We won't be thrown into a furnace. But, Lord, we could experience rejection, maybe uh, unkindness, firing for adhering to certain biblical convictions. And so, Lord, I pray that we would live ultimately for the honor of the true King of Kings who bought us with his blood and is preparing the hope of heaven for us so that even if we ever pass through the fires of this earth, we will be welcomed by good and faithful servant when we walk into the mansion you've prepared for those whom you love. We love you, God, and we pray this in your name.
And all God's people said...